Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. To Conspiracy Normal, guys, we are back. We had an interesting show last time, but we have another interesting show this time. Across the pond. Across the pond, yes, with our good friend Mark Anthony Wyatt. And he has a new book out called The Spirit of Cornwall. Actually, he has two books out called The Spirit of Cornwall, and we're going to talk about the first book on this episode. And later on, in probably about a month or so, we're going to do one on the second book. But, Mark, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Sergio. Good yeah. to be back. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for inviting me back. Thank you, sir. Um, it's always great to have you. And uh, you were here back in October for our Strange Realities Conference, which we enjoy yeah, having you. Yeah. It was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I, I put you on first. You got to start it all out. <laughs> you set the bar low, I know. <laughs> Just to encourage the rest, you know. No. It's a warm-up warm up act yeah, <laughs> while you, people were still getting comfortable. Yeah, you, 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 did, a, you did a great job. You, you really did. We were glad to have you. And, uh, hey, it got it over with earlier for, early for you, so I you know, were able I, to enjoy I, it. I was a little bit jet-lagged, actually. And, um, yeah, I was a bit nervous. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I tried to cram too much into an hour as well. I, you know, and yeah. then mixing up two stories that maybe I shouldn't have done, but, uh, it's all an sort of experience. Yeah. Well, you know, gives you that experience and it looks like, uh, you're, you're picking up some more speaking engagements here pretty soon. Yes. I've got, um, in October, uh, the Cornwall UFO research group, 
which is just up the road from where I am now in West Cornwall, a place called Truro. And um, that's been running for, I'd have to check, but I think it's about 30 odd years. Uh, a guy called David Gillum set it up uh, just after a sighting, which is actually in the book. I think it's in, yeah, it's in the second volume. Um, yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm probably going to do the same talk, but um, sort of, I'm developing it a bit further now, sort of getting deeper into it. Okay. But yeah, I'm look, looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That'll it's be quite, quite a big one, actually. Um, a, usually, he gets, about, I think, about three hundred people. Oh so wow! So I should be a bit nervous before that one. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. He, nice. He's, he's got a reputation for getting people in that are um, just. It's weird. I mean, every every year I go to, I see the names that come up, and usually they're not people I know. They're not sort of public, you know, big names. And I sometimes think, oh, I, I don't know if this is going to be any good, you know, because I just don't know about them. And they always, sort of ninety times out of a hundred, they pleasantly surprise you. You know, some amazing, um, just sort of sideways look at this phenomenon, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah, we gave you a nice little warm up to get to that. I think the, when you yeah. did the the your presentation at our conference, I think we had like maybe twenty people there at that point. So yeah, it's um, this will be a little bit yeah. more. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm told I'm supposed to sort of um, the best the best people evidently catch you know get eye contact with as many people as possible to make them feel engaged. You know, yeah, and um, that sounds great on paper. But I'm, I'm basically quite a shy guy, really. <laughs> and I've got to get over that because it's it's not. I think I've just got to be an actor when I'm up there. That's the only way I can do it. Just yeah. imagine yeah. them all yeah. as being naked. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old trick. So, yeah, right. Mark, you've been working on these books now for a couple, two or three years. I think, I think yes, that's, uh, yeah. you first yeah. sent me a, I think a copy of it or like yeah, an early no, copy of it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's totally, as you know, it's, it's totally changed from where it started really. Yeah. It's totally different. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was sort of living and breathing it for a long time. And I, I mentioned earlier on the uh, messenger chat we had, but it's almost like, if, you know, you're into music as well. You, if you get like a say um, singer songwriter, for example, who's coming up through through as a kid, teenager, and he's having all these sort of early experiences and he's writing all these songs, you'll often find that the ones who really make it, their first album, is like a look back at those early years. It's like he's that person, that man or woman, has got years of, of stories to draw from, almost you know, for their music. And they then put that out. And then, of course, the second follow-up album is a difficult one, you know, because they're suddenly left with, they've been through all their stuff. You know, they're not as hungry. Yeah. So you often find that the first album is the best album with, you know, many people. Um, and I think it's the same. Well, hopefully this isn't going to be my best one. But it's okay. I'm happy with it. But hope I can get better as I go, you know. But, um, yeah, this, as you know, it, it it tied in so many things that I love, um, not just paranormal. It was looking at uh, culture in Cornwall, the history of Cornwall, and sort of 
had sort of philosophical bits thrown in all over the place because these are all the things that I sort of like to think about and read about and talk about. And I just thought that I could combine combine it all because I felt that it was connected. Um, uh, and to, to explain that, you'd have to <laughs> read the whole book, the whole book. But Cornwall attracts creative people uh, from outside, so you know historically it always has. We've had artists and musicians. Um, in, in recent years, we had um, not that recent now. <laughs> we had Donovan down in the sixties. So it wasn't recently. <laughs> Just proves how old I am. <laughs> um, so you know, it, and and the landscape itself, uh, the land that they're walking on, that they're living on, is is somehow sort of infused into their their work. You know, whether, whether that's um, you know an artist sort of sculpting a piece of granite or somebody writing music like Donovan, it's the same result. And I think there's a connection there between that. What's making what's making the creativity, and the sort of paranormal side because it's you know it's it's all sort of interrelated. Um. So yeah, I, sorry, I'm sort of rabbiting on. You've left to <laughs> interject. Well, Mark, how did you go about with this kind of compiling these stories? Like, what um, what hmm. brought your interest into talking about kind of the folklore? And kind of the paranormal events that happen in Cornwall. And I guess we've yeah. never really yeah. talked about how you kind of ended up there either. So what brought your um, interest into all this? Yeah. Okay. So when, I mean, brief, briefly, I sort of, well, I do mention it in, in the book. Um, my first ever, I won't go into great detail because we never get onto other stuff. But I had a, I lived in the Southeast of England, but my father had, um, very, very Cornish relations. When I say very, very Cornish, we had sort of like the full-on Cornish names, uh, like Trevoro and Nicholas and so on. These are all very, very Cornish names from sort of people who've been here since the year dot, as we say. And um, so it was my first visit in uh, 73, I think it was. And that was like the beginning of it. It was just, it's like another country within a country. And you literally cross this bridge um, from on, on this um, Brunel, you know, Brunel, the IK Brunel, the engineer. You, that's one of the ways into Cornwall, one of the major ways is to cross this. There's a railway bridge and there's a road bridge alongside each other. And from that first moment going across that bridge, it's like you notice, you can almost feel it. I think most, most people probably can when they're coming into Cornwall, but you feel a difference. Now, whether that's sort of geological, you know, because there is a lot of granite just before you get to Cornwall on Dartmoor, which is high, barren land, sort of granite everywhere. And then you cross over into Cornwall and, you, uh, and you've got a lot more, of it, you know, a hell of a lot more of it as you go down. And it gets progressively, um, it's like a tiny peninsula and it's about 90 miles long, I think, top of my head. And you're never very far from the sea. You're like 10 minutes drive from the sea, wherever you are, really. Yeah, from either way. Yeah, it's very yeah. narrow. So, so, yeah. yeah, so it's sort, of, it's sort of affected by like the landscape, the granite, and then you've got the sea either side, which, as I say, it tapers down to a point to the piece where I'm at. Um, to, to the degree that the people who are talking about um, global warming and uh, the fact that the water levels can rise and all this sort of stuff in the next 50, 60 years or whatever, 
there, some of these people are forecasting that the very tip of Cornwall, which is the piece I'm in, literally just across, is going to be sort of cut off like an island because the sea is going to rise so much that there's like a little estuary, a place called Pale, sort of five-minute drive from here, which will rise. And that sort of ties into the legends because you've got, if you go back in time, you can find the legend of uh, Leoness or Lioness, whichever way you want to say it, um, which was this land that was supposedly off the coast of the far west of Cornwall, where I am. Um, on the south coast, well, it was sort of on the end, at the end of Land's End, it wrapped around the south coast towards a place called Penzance, which is, I suppose, 15 miles away, something like that. And then on the top end, which is I'm on the top coast now, there are there are high bits of rock, literally, I can see them from my window during the day here, um, called the Seven, I probably got it wrong, but there's, there's a series of stones and that was presumably higher ground at one point so if you can imagine the whole of the tip was once surrounded by land and it was this place called lioness and there's a legend that um only one man survived it a man on a white horse and uh tr there's two 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 families that lay claim to it on their coat of arms uh, one of them's trevelyan i can't remember the other one on the top of my head um so yeah it's all sort of tied into that um you know, that's just that whole thing about Cornwall being a separate country. Having so, its own uh, what's distinct, the other part of the having its own kind Sorry? of distinct culture and Oh, very much so. Yeah. They don't consider themselves well, it depends who you talk to, but most of them don't consider themselves to be English really. Yeah. They consider themselves to be Cornish first and British second, but, well, but not in what English. What brought your interest into trying to compile these different stories? And we, we've kind of got a mix going on in this book between yeah. the wider array of kind of Cornish folklore and these kind of stories and then your own personal stories. So what, yeah. what, what kind of brought your interest into kind of trying to compile this folklore and yeah. seeing it as, a, well, it, as distinct? Yeah. It, it comes back to um, before before I sort of um, went off on a tangent again about the the sort of first album idea, right. but it was it was something I'd always always been interested in since that first visit. So about seven, 1973, my my dad before that time and after that time always had lots of Cornish literature. When I say literature, I'm not talking about sort of high high blown sort of you know really posh stuff, you know. <laughs> I'm just talking to general stuff like uh, Dennis Vell Baker, um, John Betjeman. He, he was a poet laureate, actually, so I suppose he does block to um, uh, I can't remember all the names off the top of my head now. But there, there's so many of them that came to Cornwall. And they weren't necessarily Cornish, but came to Cornwall and they wrote their stuff down here, inspired by the landscape and so on. And I used to read all that stuff. And because a lot of that stuff was about folklore. Like the, the, the lioness story, I just said, right. um, about this flooding of this ancient land. And there were stories about mermaids and all this sort of thing, which we can get onto maybe later. But all of that was in these books. And I used to just sit and read. I was a bookworm, you know, just read these books over and over again. I loved all that stuff. And of course, we would start at that point from 73 onwards. We used to go every year, more or less, with my parents. 
And then as soon as I was sort of independent in my own motor, um, I was off down there my, on my own, you know. So, and I've kept that going ever since. So that's, I suppose, what, 40 odd years now. Um, so it, it's always been there. And over the years, I've heard so many stories, you know, coming out of Cornwall, being, you know, the things we mentioned, the mermaids, all this sort of stuff. Um, and the history, you know, obviously I was interested in the history as well. And I just felt that I could, wanted to combine that creativity angle with, so I didn't want to just put out a book that was just like, you know, here's a list of um, spooky stories, with sort of, you know, because most of these things aren't spooky. They're not, they're not scary at all. You know, they're just um, things that happen to people that people have observed. So, um, yeah, that, that's it, really. It's just always been there. And I just wanted to put it out there almost like um, in a similar way to what I did the first book, um, Why It's Weird Well. It was like a way of putting, a sort of drawing a drawing a close to it almost, mm-hmm. like, like it's in your head and you want to put it down on paper. And I had this vision of tying it all together, like the creativity and the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Right. And the actual place itself and bringing it all together and in the back of my mind i was always trying to sort of i I didn't consciously think oh here's how i'm going to link them i had this feeling that if i just kept working at it and kept you know just putting it out there and i can't really explain it my processes but it would actually create itself because i'm very much into that thing that I, i do believe that we do create and which I go into in the book. Occasionally, I'm not sure if it's in the second book. But we, you know, we our thoughts create reality, which we know. You know, I mean, literally everything around you is was in somebody was thinking about that at one point. You know, and it became a solid item. Yeah, from the abstract to the material, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So that that was my that's that's the way I work. It's just like I I don't. And I sort of learned that, really. I didn't always know that. I sort of picked that up from an old friend who I uh, dedicated the second book to. Um, he, he's been gone a few years now. Um, and he would often sort of, we would have these long, deep conversations, philosophy and politics and what have you. And he would often say to me, you know, take, you know, when I was sort of trying to understand how something worked, I used to want to know exactly how something worked like in that sort of engineer's sort of way of thinking and he he used to say to me take take yourself out of the equation you know you don't need to understand it all you need to know is that you know you can create it um but stop thinking too hard about it just do it and um and i think that also ties into you know the whole do do it yourself thing which i'm into um which is, you know, that whole thing that grew out of punk. Right. Which is, um, you know, don't wait for somebody to give you the opportunity to do something. No. Don't do wait it. to be asked to do something. Go and look for it. Or yeah. create, better still, create your own. Yeah, do it, do it yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very, very much into it. I think, I think a lot of my generation, you know, I'm 59, almost 60 now. We, we grew up well. But it, it was a, it depended. When punk came along, a few of us, not many of us at my age, went with it and enjoyed it. 
and were influenced by it. And then the rest of us, and I know, I still know a lot of these guys today, same age as me, who they couldn't make that leap. They still stuck with their Pink Floyd and their Genesis and their Super <laughs> which is fine. I've got, I've got no problem with that. I mean, I, I've matured enough to know that there's a place for everything. I love it. Prog rock too. has its place. Exactly. I mean, I love it all now. But, but there was a time it was very yeah. much a division. You know? There was a, phil- right. a philosophical break, not just the music. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I recently met somebody from who I hadn't seen for like 40 odd years. And he said, I remember you. You used to be into all that fringy stuff. <laughs> and I, th- I said, well, what do you mean by fringy? He said, well, weird music. He said, you didn't you didn't like what everyone else liked. I said, no, we didn't. <laughs> it wasn't just me. But um yeah, we, we we went through all that clash thing and undertones and all that when they, they were still sort of sitting cross-legged smoking weed at Floyd gigs, you know. Right. <laughs> so we sort of, we sort of moved on. But um <laughs> Well that's real inspirational. Now you're you're kind of putting out there that you're you're kind of collecting and archiving all these stories related to Cornwall now. Yes, yeah. And I've and it's um yeah, when you look when you look around, I was I was thinking this earlier. There's not that well. There's hardly anybody in Cornwall doing it really, that I know of. Um, I mean, we've got we've got my friend David Gillam, who runs the Cornwall UFO Research Group. But his strength is in organising conferences, and he's very very knowledgeable about all of this stuff, far, far more than I ever will be, you know. But he's probably not. Well, he isn't. He isn't a writer. He'd be the first to admit it. And, you know, we've all got our strengths, and that's the point, I think. Um, and then there's um, um, another friend of mine who died recently, who I'd mentioned a lot in the book, uh, Michael Williams. I mean, he was the man in Cornwall. If, if you needed to know anything about anything paranormal at all, he was the guy, you know. Yeah. Um, but it he was very quiet about it. You know, not many people knew about it, really. He, he had his own sort of niche um, audience, you know. And Colin Wilson lived there too. I mean, that's where Colin Wilson. He did, yeah. Was based of, yeah, he was a, fr- I'm a he big was a Colin Wilson fan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He lived at uh, Goran Haven, uh, so, which is on the south coast. And since you uh, since he wrote a really good friend of his. Since he wrote this too, are you are you being approached? Are you finding yourself being approached by a lot of people now who who want to tell you their well, Cornish paranormal I, stories? <laughs> Well, strangely enough, I, I set up a um, email in the back of the books, uh, yeah, like a yeah. new email, and um, <laughs> I tried to get on it the other day. I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone has actually contacted me because it's not, not my regular email. I thought, well, I better check, you know, because people think I'm rude if I haven't responded. And I couldn't get on it, <laughs> so I'm still struggling to get on it. So I, I don't really know um, in terms of emails anyway, but I have had people approach me and who know about the book and. I've had some, I mean, I was really humbled by the reviews. I mean, you know, you sort of expect a nice review from people you know, and you, you know, you, and you wonder, do they really like it? Or they just, you know, what do they, say, what do they say, blowing smoke up my ass or whatever they say in America? But uh, that is the I, I did wonder, you know. Yeah. But I, but then I noticed that there were one or two on there from people I just didn't know. And plus, I had one from a, a friend of mine in Springfield, Illinois, who's a, a retired professor, who's extremely honest, shall we say. And if it had been crap, he would have told me, and he would have probably enjoyed telling me. 
So, um, and he gave me a really good review. So I'm, I'm hoping that the reviews will um, get people's attention to, you know, give the books a try. And I'm trying, you know, I'm just trying to get onto the local BBC Radio yeah. Cornwall. Oh, nice, yeah. And, um, but I haven't, I, was, I sent an email to him two days ago. I, I sort of dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, as they say, you know, I did everything possible to sort of, you know, be polite and introduce myself and all this. And they haven't responded yet. <laughs> but it would Yeah, be good, it can be hard to get the media thing, interested sometimes. We've experienced that yeah. ourselves. Let, yeah. So let's talk a little bit of some of these personal stories, Mark. Some of the things that okay. have happened um, to you and maybe some other people that are around you. And okay. I'll start with uh, this one's fairly simple. The I guess the Buddy Holly song. Oh yeah, I, I like that one. I mean, it's um, it's just I, I, where, where do I start with this? It's it's quite a the actual happening, if you like, is very small. Right, right at the end, as you as you saw, and I and I, it's it's a very short chapter, isn't it? It's like two or three pages. And it basically just gave a background to this, this this old friend of mine called Danny, who I met, I suppose, early 2000s, something like that, when I moved to Bude in Northport. And he was a builder. And uh, he was very loud. He was very, um, I don't know if he means anything over there, but very sort of cockney, a bit like Michael Caine. So everything he said was very loud. And he was very, very direct. <laughs> and you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. You know, that sort of thing. That's a terrible Michael Caine impression. Uh, <laughs> I used to do that a lot of times. Um, so he was that sort of guy. And I I knew it because he, he became a good friend of mine. He taught me to play very basic guitar back in the day. And he would tell me a few of his stories from when he was younger. He was, by this time, he would have been in his late 50s because he died at 64. And one of his things was he absolutely loved Buddy Holly. I mean, above all else, he, he liked, um, you know, I think Marty Wilde and people like that as well, and uh, Eddie Cochran, these sort of people. He loved all that rock and roll thing. Yeah. And he was in this um, Teddy Boy. We, they called him Teddy Boys. Yeah. They were like really tough guys with big sideburns and like quiffs. So did and he have the hair and everything? Seats. Did he have like that? I believe so. Did he still have yeah, it going on? Yeah. yeah. He, he was involved in things which I really can't mention on, on the air. Um, <laughs> gotcha. he, he was involved in something with, uh, all I'll say is it involved an Italian guy from these street gangs around London in the 50s after, after the war. And um, there was a lot of hostility amongst these guys with the Italians at the time. There isn't now, but there was at the time because of their role in the war with the Germans. And a friend of his had had an experience, a nasty experience with, with an Italian, basically. Um, and it, it was it was a terrible thing. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't condone it. And he wasn't proud of it. But he was involved in a very, very nasty um, attack where a, co a copper local policemen found them doing what they were doing that's all i'm going to say and they said no i'm more than said it now they said oh you know what's he and this is a gang of them last nasty gang um they said oh what's he doing up there and they said oh well i've said it now i said it 
Um, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go any further because it's, it's, it's very, very nasty. Gotcha. But basically, the copper, the copper turned a blind eye to what they were doing. And he said, well, just make sure he's gone by the morning. Uh, the copper had had a nasty experience, too. And, you know, it was a very rough place, If you know, at the edge of London in uh, post-war years, you know. Right. You've got to remember a lot of these people had come back from the war and they were, you know, hardened killers, a lot of them, you know. And you can't just switch that off, like as you found out with Vietnam and so on. You know, you can't switch mm-hmm. that off. So he, he, I knew all his, all of his past, and then he, he had a sort of much nicer side to him. I mean, he was just tied up in that. But he went off and toured all over America, and he just absolutely loved it. He was a really nice guy, but at the same time, you, you know, somebody you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of. You know, he, he was. Um, very, he wasn't particularly big. He was just very, very tough, you know. And I, I would back, I would have backed him against more or less anybody, you know. Um, he had hands like the size of shovels, <laughs> which was quite amusing when he was trying to teach me how to play an A when I first started playing guitar. Because he, he said, "What are you doing? Give me the guitar." And he showed me, and he just put a finger over the three strings and said, "You do it like that." And I said, "Well, if I do it like that, I've still got two strings free." <laughs> You know, because he just had such big, uh, big hands, you know. Right. Um, anyway, so he did all this touring around America, and then he, they eventually kicked him out because he overstayed his uh, visa. Welcome. But it, the whole thing about Buddy Holly was he, that was like a lifelong passion from the 50s, you know. And nobody quite matched up to Buddy Holly for him because I, I remember mentioning the Who to him. Now, the Who arrived in the early 60s, and basically, he called them young upstarts or something, you know, which made me laugh because I'm thinking, well, you know, they're actually quite old and they were old when he was telling me this, you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. And so, so he just had this attitude. It's, it's like everything stopped after the 50s for him, really, I think, really, in terms of music. So anyway, he, he used to drive around Butte, and it's a very small town. And he used to drive around with this Buddy Holly. It was nearly always Buddy Holly music blaring out of his car way too loud and so you always knew it was him and you would sort of hear it in the distance and you'd sort oh danny's around and then you'd sort of keep your lookout and then sure enough he'd go past you and he'd wave at you and he'd big smile and his thumbs up out the window and um so that was always a part of him you know now when he died and i i knew his um i sort of still know his two daughters and one of his daughters is a very good folk musician and she was playing, um, I'm trying to remember what it was now. I think it was True Love Ways or something over the, at the funeral, over the open, you know, it was an actual burial because we, we have a lot of cremations here. This was an actual burial. And um, as she was playing this song, I mean, I was close enough to she she was obviously very, very upset. And this is really, it's just an image that never leave me. Her tears were running down the fretboard as she was playing, as she was looking over this open grave, as they were lowering him down. And obviously making it even harder to play it, you know, but she still somehow managed to play it like perfectly. And um, then I think it was a month or so later, the other daughter was at work and she had this little, it was a little two-story building. She was on the top floor. And it was, I think it was the summer or late spring morning, something like this. 
and she heard Buddy Holly music. Well, she actually, I think at first she just heard this noise, <laughs> and then she gradually realised, oh, it's Buddy Holly. She then realised it was because it's just like the one road that passes this office that she's at, and on the other side there's a golf course. You know, there's not much there. Really. It's quite near the sea, and she just instinctively, without really thinking about it at all, you know, because her dad hadn't been gone that long, and you know, I mean. If you've lost a parent, you'll you'll understand this. But when when they first go in the first few months or so, you sort of forget that occasionally, and you, you go to pick the phone up and speak to them, or think, oh, tell mum about that or whatever, you know. Sure. And you come, you know. And she had one of those moments, and she just basically jumped up from her desk to go and see her dad because her dad used to regularly go past her office, and he knew obviously his daughter where she worked. And he would go past and sort of just wave out the window as he was going by. So she heard this, um, trying to remember what it was. I think it was Peggy Sue got married or something. I can't remember what she said. It might, there's two, there's, there's Peggy Sue and there's Peggy Sue got married. It was one of those I, see, I seem to remember. And she's standing at the window waiting for him to appear around the corner and just drive that little short stretch. Now, no car came around that corner at that time. But the music got closer and closer as it passed, and then it went away. As you know, so you can imagine like the passage of this vehicle, but you can't actually see it. And it was it was only around about that point that she probably remembered. Oh, oh yeah, Dad's not with us anymore, you know. But she clearly heard this music coming from the road, coming from the sound of a car going right by the building. So mm. I mean. So, I mean, in the book, I obviously tell the whole story to give you a flavour of his character. Um, he, he was, like I say, one of those guys that you all either loved or hated, really. A lot of people were turned off by his very... Uh, he, he was quite loud, just to put it mildly. He was quite loud, and, and he, he couldn't have a quiet conversation. He just couldn't do that. <laughs> it was impossible. Um, yeah, he, I mean, a lot of the old, the old school cockneys, they... They speak from quite deep down in their voice box, I think. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, it's yeah, I think so. It's uh, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors, you know. It's a lot deeper. So, one that yeah, happened yeah. to you directly, you call this one the Grinville Ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I sort of tell the whole story of how I got involved in. So I'll try, <laughs> try to cut that one down. Um, so, so briefly, I was I was looking for a place. I I was renting out my flat, my holiday flat, in this same area I'm in now. Um, it, it was because we're right on the coast. It's a beautiful area, and I had the I bright idea that I would make a bit of money if I hired it out to a holiday Because when I'm, but as and as you know, I was traveling back and forth to America anyway. Uh, but it, it was a little bit more successful than I um, envisioned, I suppose. So uh, when I came back. I wasn't always able to go into my own place and, you know, use it. So I needed somewhere. I needed like a little, um, just like one room, really. So I was chatting to a mate and he said, oh, my son lives in a place called Grenville. And I, I knew of the place, but had never been inside it. And it was, it's on a little lane. So it's very near the sea by these cliffs and these um, fields that run up sort of upwards towards the cliff. 
So you can't actually see the sea from there, but it's literally just like I don't know, a 10 minute walk across the fields. And it's pretty remote. It's at the beginning of this very, very narrow lane where you can only get one vehicle up at a time. And, you know, there's sort of thatched cottages around it and all sorts. It's, it's very, very rural and no street lights, nothing like that. And there was a lot of young people living in this place. Now, obviously, I'm not young. <laughs> and his son was basically like overseeing this place as a sort of, um, it, it turned out to be, there's a lot more to us, but it turned out to be he was running on behalf of somebody else who was traveling, a guy called Jesus, believe it or not, <laughs> who basically did did look like Jesus, the Jesus we all know from the paintings, you know. And the white Jesus. The white Jesus. <laughs> and, okay. um, yeah, the white one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it was like one of these sort of, uh, the real owner was renting it to somebody else or and, and then he was doing it to someone else and so on. It was coming down the chain. And he basically had a, a couple of spare rooms that he could you know, let me use for a you know, nominal amount of month, not very much at all. And there were shared facilities, like shared kitchen, bathroom, this sort of thing. And it, it wasn't too bad. It sounds awful, but actually it wasn't too bad. And it sort of gave me a sort of um, almost like a, a second childhood in a way. Because kind of like a were, college dorm kind of experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was like almost like Porky's or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. They, they, were, uh, they were incredibly funny at I didn't know Porky's um, made it over there to, to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not quite the same, but yeah, it's um, but but they were a lively bunch. They were all um, either surfers or rugby players or both, and it was they were very very generous people, very funny, very very funny, and you know I I, I couldn't cope with it all the time because like you know I'm fifty nine. <laughs> Right, and sometimes they'd, they'd actually have parties that went on till sort of literally five o'clock in the morning, and they did warn me about it and sort of gave me a chance to sort of get out for the evening or whatever you know. Um, so it was quite an interesting place. But the room I got given, um, which was all in a hell of a mess when I got it, I had to sort of clear it all out and paint it. I had a fantastic view um, from a balcony, and it was a very lovely place, but very small. But I had everything I wanted in there, you know, for, you know, I could, I could just, um, you know, make myself a cup of coffee in there. I could sit and watch videos and whatever, you know, and read. So it was ideal. But I knew that somebody had lived in there before and I knew that this person had been a surfer. But I mean, a lot of them are anyway there because it's right on the coast. It's a surfy place. Yeah. And, you know, the clues were in the way it was decorated. It had like driftwood and sort of beach stones everywhere and pictures of surfers and all this sort of stuff. But I cleared all that up. and um, But I kept a little token piece of it. I think it was a stones or something. There was something I kept because somebody had said to me, well, you really ought to just leave something there because it, the guy, because I, di I didn't know this at the time, but it gradually came to my attention through people talking to me, individual, you know, independently of each other, that this guy, who we, who we called Scatman, or they called Scatman, had lived in this place, and he died young. He died at 45. And he was, what they say, in, you know, imbued 
one of his really popular people, they call him a legend. You know, he was he was a legend, as you say. And I might possibly have met him before, but I didn't I wouldn't have known him by name sure. when he was alive. I wouldn't have known him. But it's very likely I did because I did surf for a while. I surfed for about two years. So it's possible that, you know, he would have been within my within a you know, is, few yards of it. Is Cornwall kinda like the surfing center of the UK? Um, one of them. The, the, the one everyone knows is Newquay. Um, Newquay is where all the Aussies come. When the Aussies come to Britain, they automatically head to Newquay. Okay. Um, and then they realise that the best surf is actually outside of surf. Newquay. It's, you know, there's always sort of pri- private places uh, that, that the surfers know about. And, and nobody, don't, you know, the tourists don't know. You you have to be in with the surfers to find out where they are. They've, they've jealously guarded some of the best places. Right. And a lot of those places were around viewed. Um, probably more so than where I am now, actually, in the far west, but that was on the north coast. Um, so anyway, I, I used to hear these stories. People would tell me, they'd sort of say to me, because they knew I was in his room, because a lot of these people had actually lived with him, and a lot of these people were his friend in life, you know. And all these stories kept coming to my attention that people had actually experienced this guy. Uh, his real name was Simon, by the way, I should say that. Um, they had either sensed him or they'd actually seen him. And this had happened a lot. Now, there were two cases, um, my, well, my two sort of favourite moments of that were one of the guys, he, he was... Um, guy that run sort of raves and things um, one of those lads who had been at this place at some point and i his girlfriend told me his story and then he sort of confirmed it he had been shortly after this uh, scatman had died a month or so after he'd been walking up this long lane towards the house grenville and he'd been in his sorry i'm mixing them up i'm mixing them up that's the other guy he'd been driving We've been driving up there in this white van, and he'd seen a guy on a bicycle. And what you have to realise is this is a very, very narrow lane, and in Cornwall, these lanes are—they have what we call Cornish hedges at the side, which are they're not actually a hedge as as you know them. They're a bank, they're an earthen bank that rises up above the field by about you know it could be four foot, it could be five foot, it could be more, it could be less. And they're covered in vegetation, just wild. And then on top of that, they've got a hedge or sort of young, sort of smaller trees, you know, mostly. And they tend to make tunnels if they're not looked after. So these lanes are very dark. And and obviously at the early hours of the morning, which this was, you know, no street lights, just his headlights from his van. He sees the bike. He's wondering who it is because, you know, there's only so many people live in that tiny remote area and you know to be in that area you're going to be living there probably at that time of the morning so he slows down and goes around him to his left because we obviously you know we drive on the other side anyway but there's only like one carriageway anyway and he looks over and he's shocked to see but it's his old mate that died but this all happened so quickly that by the time he sort of registered that fact He's gone past him, but he was traveling slowly anyway. So he checked his mirror and there's nobody there. Yeah. yeah so he sees him on the approach. Huh. He sees him as he passes, but then he's gone. Now, 
I, I'm not sure which happened first. So I'd have to double check. But another guy, a guy called Stell, um, he, he's a surfer, um, very, very good, and a lifeguard, works on the beaches, and he travels all over the world. He's, he's, he's overseas now. They all, they all do, you know. They spend their life surfing. It's more than just, um, you know, they, they live for the surfing and they, they, they stay imbued for a while, earn a few quid, and then they go off traveling. That's their life. You know? uh, he was, now I'm trying to think what he was doing. Was he walking or cycling? I have to try and remember. Yeah, he was walking. So he was walking up the lane and he was in more or less the same spot when he heard a bicycle coming up behind him sort of quite quick, you know, you heard that sort of swishing sound. So he threw himself into the bank, sort of back first, to just get out of the way, because it's a very narrow lane, you know. And then he sort of obviously looked back to his left to see who it was. And there was no one there. So the next thing that happens is he feels this sort of, I forget how he explained it, but he said like, a, like an energy went through him. And as it went through him, he more or less instantaneously thought of his mate Scatman and he was smiling and he hadn't been thinking about him at all up to that point he hadn't been walking up the lane thinking about him it was just like it suddenly came to him at that moment and he's pretty convinced that it was him um, basically he's just you know spooking his old mate I suppose and there were several cases. I mean, I, I didn't put it in the book. I don't think I did, but I was sat in the, well, I, I put a piece of it in. I was sat in the room one, one, one Saturday night. They all, they all, they said to me, oh, do you want to come out for a beer? And they were all going. And for whatever reason, I didn't really feel up to it. I said, no, no, it's all right. I'll, I'll stop in tonight. I'll be fine. And I was the only one there. So it's a large house, quite a large house with multiple rooms. And it's quite creepy because because we by this time I think I'd heard all the stories as well, and I had my own tiny room upstairs, and I could hear movement, and I could hear movement coming right up to the door, and I mean I didn't put this in the, in the book, but I actually invite because I've been talking about this to Janice actually, and she said, well just talk to him, talk to him as if as if he's there. Right. You know, so if you feel he's there, talk to him and just tell him that, you know, you're going to respect his room and you, you know, you're aware of him and, you know, just talk to him like, like you would if he was alive, if you, you know, if he was one of your mates. And I found myself doing this <laughs> and I felt a bit silly at first, but I could definitely feel there was something there. There was definitely something in the room with me, but I couldn't see it. And it, it wasn't creepy. It was just normal, you know. Um, and yeah, after you could feel that, the that presence, happened. and it didn't feel yeah. like it was malevolent or evil. It just, oh, definitely, it just, definitely not. Yeah. No, it definitely wasn't malevolent. It's, it's a very friendly presence. Right. And I mean, I, I, I really can't sort of, I'm not, I'm probably better at putting it all down in writing, but there's so many people who have experienced this. I mean, I, I think I've probably got most of them in the story, but they all experience different aspects. Some, some could. Some actually saw him. They, they claimed to see him quite, I think, two or three of them. And he was dressed the same way that they knew he did in life. You know, he was, um, right. I'm trying to remember now. I, I didn't know him in life. So he had, um, 
I think he used to wore, wear what they call board shorts, which are like surfboard shorts. And um, I'm trying to remember now, I think he had brightly coloured shirts and, you know, he, he had this big hair as well. That was the thing they all told me, he had this big, crazy hair. And about in life, he was kind of like the life of the party type of guy. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are videos. You can actually go online, um, YouTube. But if you put Scatsman, you can actually find him on there. And he actually does, he talks, they had the BBC down there some years ago, talking to him about surfing. And he's just basically, you could see that the guy was full of life and passion for life. He was just like a really sort of, uh, sort of up sort of person, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't low key or anything. He was quite cheerful one. And there's another, there's another video on there. When they, when he actually died, they had a memorial for him and they had a big circle of surfers out in the bay. And they do this every now and again. If a surfer dies, they will give him this honor. They will just, all the surfers will turn up and they'll have a big ring. And they did that for him, and they, he had a huge turnout. I mean, I, off the top of my head, I think there was about 100 surfers in the sea who basically turned up for that event. And the lifeboat, the local lifeboat went out there and put a reef in water and all this sort of thing. And, um, I mean, it, even that ties into the folklore because they did the oggy, oggy, oggy thing, which I don't know if you're aware of, but that's like, you know, that, that thing about... Um, the three, you know, which which crops up again and again. That comes from old Cornish folklore. Um, it's like um, you'll hear it wherever there's a Cornish rugby team, you know. They, they, <laughs> so, so you have like a caller who says, I, I, I can't really do it here because yeah. it's not the place. But You're going to wake they everybody out up if you do it. If you do yeah, it, I don't do wake it. everyone up. But it's like <laughs> one of them calls out Oggy. No, I'm trying to think. Oggy, oggy, oggy. And then the response is, oi, oi, oi. And then he goes, oggy. And they go, oi, oi. And, and it, I don't know. I've probably got it wrong. But it's like, <laughs> it's a chain. And it goes really, really loud. It gets louder and louder. Well, and it's like, um, they use it as like a sign of respect. And it's like, um, old folk. It come, comes from like way back, you know. When you, um, when people were having these experiences, when you felt that too, how yeah. how long had it been since he had passed away? Oh, he died in 2012, I think it was. And okay. This was 2017, 18, probably 18, I think. Right, so in general, so not it, too long. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people were actually still, you know, to a, to a, to a slight extent. I think some of them were still quite, you know, you couldn't really talk about it because they were quite yeah. upset. You know, they were still quite upset. He was a, he was a very popular man, you know? Right, and he—he right. um, he was just—I don't know. I mean, I did—I definitely felt him in there, like that presence of it. Yeah, like he um, was like watching the house, almost like he's kind of like a yeah. house spirit or like a guardian spirit in oh, some kind of way. De- definitely. Now. I mean, yeah, one of the girls. I'm trying to think. Yeah, or <laughs> something. She said to me quite early on when I got there. She said, "Have you seen him yet?" And I was like, "Well." Hmm who do you mean? And she said, well, Scatman, have you seen him? And I said, well, you know, and by this time, I'm sort of getting bits of information from different people. And I said, well, well, no, I haven't. And she said, well, be patient. She said, he'll turn up. He'll check you out. And I thought, yeah, I thought oh, she just winded me up. But when I look back at it, there was a morning, I think possibly the second day that I was there. And 
I was stood in the kitchen downstairs and I was looking at just doing a bit of washing up, looking out the window, and it's like a, a caravan site, like a camper site just behind this the room. And I was watching these, I think I was watching squirrels or something, I can't remember now. But I, I was just sort of daydreaming while I was washing up, sort of quite early in the morning. You know, I'm not talking about overnight. This is like, you know, 10 o'clock or whatever. Right. And there's suddenly movement at the back door, which is to my left as I'm standing there, about, uh, I don't know, a few yards away. And the door opens. Well, I can't remember seeing it open, but I remember this guy walking in. And he basically just said, um, all right, or something like that. Just like it's just what people say, all right, all right, all right, you know. And um, I just was just busy doing what I was doing, and I just went, all right, mate, and just carried on. I didn't really pay him much attention. I just smiled, said, all right, carried on what I was doing. And I made the assumption without, you know, wasn't that bothered, but he'd gone over to my right. So where I'm standing, he's come from the left behind me. He's heading over towards past me, behind me. And over that way, when you get through the kitchen, there's a flight of stairs in the middle of the house, which takes you up, obviously, to, well, to the bedrooms, where his room was, where my room was, you know, that same room. And one of the guy that was running the place, a friend of mine called Niall, he was possibly, and I don't know this for sure, he was possibly still in his room because... Occasionally, he would just sort of uh, lock himself away in his room and watch rugby or whatever, you know, and wasn't always up that early in the morning, you know. And um, I just assumed that this guy had come to see Niall or somebody else who might have been up there. And because, like, people were coming and going all the time from this property. It was a very lively place. So you had, you had about eight tenants and all wow. of those tenants had their own groups of friends. Right. And most of those groups of friends all knew each other. So it was just this, it was just like a big social club. And everybody was friendly. You know, you, if you weren't a friend when they walked in, usually, apart from this occasion, if you weren't a friend when they walked in, you were when they walked out, you know, because they were nice people, you know, good fun. And very welcoming, you know. Uh, but on this occasion, this guy, I think he just went upstairs, but I didn't see him go upstairs because I was just busy washing up. But when I look back, I often wonder, and I don't know, but I often wonder if that was him. Because I've had these, well, all my life probably, I've had what I call walk-bys, where you'll see somebody walk by you and you'll just make the assumption that they're just, they might look a bit unusual, as was the case in a couple of cases. But Generally, they just look like a normal person. But they've got something about them that says they're not, but you don't, you can't quite put your finger on it. So being curious, you look around, you look over your shoulder after they've gone by to have another look. And quite frequently, that has happened, that has happened a few times to me. They're not there. So I suspect that that, what he was that's what he was doing whether they knowingly do it or not i couldn't tell you but i think that's what happens or you just are able to pick up on it whereas other people weren't possibly yeah i mean i, I think We've, a lot of people can and a lot of people probably don't even know they can you know probably they, yeah. if they saw something like that and then they, they probably imagine they probably think oh i imagine it, you know they just think that must have been some person 
Let's yeah. I want to talk a little bit about let's talk about this owl story. Yeah, sure. This uh <laughs> this was uh super interesting. A little bit of the shades of the of the Mike Cleland material here too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, where where should I start? I, my my son, Dexter, he was in a band where he was still living at home with me at the time. I think this was about two thousand fifteen ish, sometime around then. And I dropped him off earlier in the evening. So I was living in Butte. He was going to a place in a village called Stratton, which crops up in this book quite a lot, as you probably noticed, because of a battle and various other things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I dropped him off, I think, from memory, about half seven-ish, something like that, and dropped him off with his guitar and his little bass amp or whatever. And basically the the deal was, because I did this a lot in those days, because he didn't have transport. He was too young anyway. And um, the deal was I'd come and pick him up later. But because I had to get up early in the morning, I basically said to him, well, don't make it too late. So we had that arrangement in place anyway. I dropped him off, went back home. And I I was half watching telly and half reading a book at the time. And I was sort of fully aware that at a certain point in time, I think it was half 10, 11, something like that, I would get a call and I would go and get him. And that would be it. So I was I was alert. What I'm trying to say is I was alert. I was not, I mean, I'm, I don't think I was tired. Um, so I was, I was just alert because I knew that I had to be alert because I knew I was going to get a phone call and I couldn't sort of afford to relax too much. Um, so I was just sat there reading and watching the box and uh, I get a phone call around about half 10 and it's Dexter and he says, um, Oh, Dad, can you come and get me? I'm ready now. <laughs> Not a very good impression. So I said, yeah, I'll be up there in a few minutes. And that that this is this is a weird bit. It's difficult to explain. I hope I've explained it properly in the book. So I've literally just said, yeah, I'll be up there in a few minutes. And I hang on. So this was like in the house phone, I think. So I then, unknown to me, somehow I've fallen asleep. <laughs> Which is just the weirdest thing because, I mean, even now, I'm 59 now and I still don't do that. It yeah. is unusual. But you hadn't done it before, do. you haven't done it since. Yeah. Sorry? You, you haven't done it before and you haven't done it since. Well, I've done it once before. I did it once before many, many, many years ago. When I was about 19, which was in my first book, I did it. Uh, when I was with my mates and watching a film. That was the only other time I've ever done it. And, uh, I fell asleep halfway through a film and then woke up sort of about two or three hours later and carried on the conversation exactly where I left off. Yeah, I remember that story. Shocked. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I fright- frightened the life out of him because this voice suddenly came from behind him. So, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they just knew I They knew I was asleep, but, you know, I didn't know that. I thought I just blinked, you know. And um, so this is a similar thing to, to, as to what happened. So, Next thing I know, so so from my perspective, I've just put the phone down and I've said, I'm coming to get you, you know. Next thing I know, the phone's ringing again and I'm thinking, I've just put the phone down. This is weird. So it's probably him ringing me again to say something or whatever, you know. So I pick the phone up and I say, yes, and uh, it's Dexter again. And he says, I can't know his exact words, but it's like, and it, there was swear words involved. <laughs> like where the... Uh, do you think you are or something like that? You know, uh, you, you said you were coming up. 
And I said, yeah, I did. Because I still don't know at this point that that was like, I think it was two and a half, three hours earlier. And I said, yeah, I just told you I'm coming up. You know, be patient. I can't, I can't get up with that quick. And he said, Dad, that was three hours ago. Mm-hmm. And I checked my watch or clock or whatever and realized he was right. And I couldn't, couldn't really believe that. thought it was strange. So I said, okay, don't worry. Look, I'm coming up now. And I was a bit, I felt bad about it because he was basically, I think he was about 17 or something. And I'm guessing now I'd have to work it up. But he was at a mate's house who would have been roughly the same age, probably still living at home with the parents, you know. And this was now getting on for like one-ish in the morning, I think. And he was, his mate had actually sort of had to stick around, you know, on a weekday when he had to get up in the morning with my son, you know, outside, just being being his mate, you know, waiting for me to come and get home. And I, so I, I hurried up there. I went, it's not that far. It's probably a 10-minute run. But it's very, very rural again, you know. And I went through this little village called Poffville. And I basically, there's nothing on the road. So I just got my foot hard down and I'm hoping nothing's around. And I had a few near misses on the way up as well. Because the roads are so narrow. It's just like lanes, you know. And I get to this crossroads. And when I get to the crossroads, I... I'm wary of the fact that even though it's early hours of the morning and even though it's a very, very quiet area with generally nothing on the road that time of night, there always might be something. So instead of just going straight out and turning right at this junction where I had to go, I had a quick look to the left first before I even got there. I sort of looked left first, made sure nothing was coming and then went to go right. But as I went to go right, there's this owl stood in the road. Like what? I saw as an owl. And it's difficult to explain it to anyone this hasn't happened to, but you don't think at the time that's too big to be an owl. You don't think that. You just think, oh, it's a big owl. And you deal with it, you know, and then you think about it later. That's what happened. So I, it was sort of, well, it was above my, my bonnet. I um, never know what you call them in America, the front of the car. Uh, the, trunk, bump, is it? the bumper the hood the hood the hood yeah. that's the one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah that reminds me of a John Prine song where he talks about you know when you're having a good day there's always some pigeon that comes and shits on your hood <laughs> <laughs> you've probably not heard that one no. <laughs> or, or some uh, American president has a personal war with Iraq because he that was the other line <laughs> um, yeah so I went to turn right and as I say this thing's just stood there in the middle of a road but you have to understand the scale of a road the road is not that wide but it stood in the middle of a road so I couldn't pass it because I would, I couldn't really go around it because there wouldn't be enough space you know so I'm just sitting there thinking well it'll move it'll move it'll see me it'll move and its head was higher than the hood Slightly, not hugely, but slightly longer. And it was, I suppose, uh, I don't know, maybe two foot across the front of the body section. And I don't know, 18 inches or so, 24 inches, maybe something around the head. You know, it was quite um, short short and stumpy, I suppose is a better way of saying that. 
and it just sort of sat there and i thought well i've got to get it out of the way i was in a rush anyway and i i didn't want i don't think i beeped i don't think i beeped i'm trying to think back now but i opened the window and i hollered at it i sort of basically sort of got out of the way and then it progressed it wouldn't it just wouldn't react and so i tried raising my voice and, and i tried swearing <laughs> and nothing <laughs> nothing really worked and it seemed to be a while that i was there i don't know how, but it seemed to be I don't know, a couple of minutes or so and eventually it, it took off but it sort of flew towards me right and as it came towards me it went to my right so i'm sat there we're, we're sat on the right hand side because I'm, we're driving right and i've got my window open and this thing flies past me and it's flapping its wings it was an amazing sight and you could literally see the feathers on the wings you could see them sort of you know and it was sort of staring at me all the time all the time this was happening it was sort of glaring at me and it was still glaring at me when it flew past like it almost had its head to the right as it went past me and i'm on its right you know um and all the time it was there in the middle of a road it had like a sort of menacing sort of feel to it as if it was i got the impression it was like sort of hiding something that's that's the impression i got but i couldn't see anything i could see around it and i couldn't see anything you know just just the um, the banks of the, the cornish hedge and the, the ditch and so on and um it sort of i think it was moonlight yeah, it's quite moonlit. But as we turned, as I say so we, me, as I went off to the right, you know, this thing had already flown. I just hurried on down, down this sort of downhill, down part, and I went past the battlefield site, which is not that far away from there. In fact, that's the point about this place. If you go right, which I had to, there was a, there's a battlefield site from 1643 where hundreds of people were killed and horses. And then to the left of that, probably about a mile, you've got GCHQ, which has frequent UFO sightings, uh, some of which are in the book. So the whole area, and there, was all, and there were ex people have had experiences, which again are in the book, um, in the village where I came up from to get to that crossroads. So it's, I think I say in the, um, in the book, it's like a sort of paranormal crosshairs. It's like, mm -hmm. if it's going to happen, it's going to happen around there somewhere, you know. Um, but anyway, I went, went off, collected my son, didn't really think much about it at that point. Picked him up, and he was a bit grumpy because I kept him waiting, you know, understandably. And basically just making small talk. And I said, oh, I saw, when I was driving back, I said, oh, I saw an owl, a really big owl, huge, just stood in the road and told him that. And he said, how big was him? I told him. And he said, owls aren't that big, Dad. Which was a sort of running theme to this thing. So as a sort of, almost like a comic side to it in the, and it actually wasn't until he said it that first time but i actually thought he's right they're not that big as far as i know you know right and then i then i, I went to see a mate sometime after probably in the, in the week days or a week later you know um who also crops up in his book a few times because he he has a few experiences and basically told him about this and he had, I think it was the, what they call the Observer Book of British Birds, which is, you know, like a reference book with just about every bird that is known to Britain, you know. And we sort of had a look through that, couldn't see anything, went online, 
And then we started sort of trying to figure out what it was. Could it have been a migrant that was, you know, blown off course? And we looked at all that. But there's like a twist to this because at the time I was writing, well, I, I wasn't even going to put that in the book because I didn't really want to put my own stuff in there. I wanted to just rely on other people's stuff because I did my own stuff as much as possible, you know, in, in the first book. And I was trying to steer clear of that. And um, so I'm, I'm losing my. Let me just take a drink. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting, Mark, that you have this experience, and especially after having, I mean, it's it's obvious that you that you that you probably fell asleep, but it's unexplained why you probably did, and then you you have yeah. this like missing time event, and then all of a sudden yeah. you see this rather unusually large owl, yeah. and of course but you know that that brings back the whole. Screen memory idea, possibly, yeah, but but it yeah. almost seems like you had an encounter with something that was one hundred percent real because you didn't have any missing time or anything after that. But, well, no, no. I mean, as far as, no, as far as we know, there was no missing time. Yeah. And the thing was, um, you know, I think I, I mean, I, I know of I've read some of Mike Cleland's stuff and I've listened to him speak many times, right? And I, and I do find all that fascinating. Well. That sort of comes back to what I, I actually put, because when I was writing, so I had no intention of actually putting this in the book. But I hadn't even considered it. It was something, you know, like when something happens to you and you sort of store it away and you sort of forget about it. That's what it was. It wasn't that important to me. I didn't think it was anyway. Sure. You thought and nothing of it at the time. No. And I think about two years ago, we actually discussed this, I think, on here. And I was sat in um, Janice's place in Springfield, Illinois, and I'd been writing all day. And and she said to me, well, actually, I probably hadn't been writing all day, but she said to me, "Have you? are you going to put the owl story in your book? So I've been on, been on this book for years. And and I said, well, no, I had no intention of doing that, really, because not, they're not going to be my, my experiences. are going to be other people's. And she said, well, I think you should, because, you know, it's a, it's a good story. Whatever it was, even if it was a real creature, it's a good story, you know? And she sort of talked me into it and I thought, okay, I'll do it. So I started writing it all out and eventually, you know, finished off a thing and I thought, great, I'm going to have a rest, fed up with typing. <laughs> and I got myself a beer and sat down on a sofa and I wanted to find a podcast and I was looking for a podcast and I did my usual thing. It's like go to YouTube and just flick through. <laughs> and um, I found Expanded Perspectives. Uh, the guys from Texas. And basically, there was a, um, a little picture, you know, like, I forget what they call it, like, which tells you what's on, you know, gives you a clue as to what they're talking about. And it was a picture of, like, a, the, the typical sort of Whitley Strieber type owl that's on the cover. Sorry, owl, alien. Right. Yeah, the communion. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. So the two of them alongside each other. And I just thought, well, that's, that's interesting because I've just been, re you know, writing about this my own experience, which I'd never really considered much before that. You know, it was just something that happened and I'd sort of just follow it away. And um, I thought, oh, listen to that. And the first story they were on was something completely unconnected, I think, and I wasn't that bothered about it. And then they started talking about this guy who'd sent a letter in, who was from Texas, somewhere in Texas. And basically he told them this story 
of how he'd seen this huge owl, how he'd been driving down a country lane. And I, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not American. And I don't, I've never been to Texas. I never had that image of Texas that they'd actually have country lanes. I thought that was a very sort of English thing, you know, Cornish thing. That's a lot of country Um, in Texas. Yeah. It's pretty big. Country. uh, (laughs) Texas is huge. That's right. That's right. I sort of learned that after the the fact, you know. But I was fascinated because his description was almost exactly the same as what happened to me. And my initial reaction, which was so, you know, again, it's just that instinctive first knee-jerk reaction, is how did he get hold of my experience or something, you know? And then, of course, as soon as I said it, I thought, well, yeah, it probably does happen to other people as well, you know. Mm. And then I, you know, I sort of knew from, and I sort of started looking at the Cleland stuff and seeing that, yeah, it does happen all the time. Well, um, Mark, let's let's talk about things that have happened to others and things that have happened um, yeah, sure. folk folklore there. And, uh, yeah. well, something I wanted to talk about, I really like Chapter 6, the Buttes uh, Butte's ghost trains. I thought that was interesting oh, no. because you kind of almost have this uh, this bridge to another time that people saw. In addition to not just uh, you know not just a figure or something like that, people actually hearing yeah. trains. And I guess this was a there was people who lived on the former side of this railway station. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. This this came to me from a lady. She, um, I can't give you a real name, but she, I, I call her Petra in the story. And basically, she had, I think she had been there. So they're like retirement um, bungalows, I suppose, quite small little units. And they have like a, a resident or caretaker, carer sort of on site. And they're literally on the site of where the railway station once was. And they'd been there for a long time. I think probably for almost 100 years, the railway had been there, maybe more. And um, she had she'd experienced things. She'd sort of woken up in the small hours and sort of heard noises of men shouting at each other, um, which, you know, you could say, well, it come from anywhere, but it's a very quiet area. It's There's a rugby club to one side, uh, you know, which closes at sort of midnight or whatever, you know. There's, there's no reason for any men to be shouting or anything about mm-hmm. it. And um, she said it sounded like, like she could hear like whistles and stuff and people shouting. And she said it was like the sounds of a railway station. And she also experienced people. So she'd be sitting in her little retirement bungalow with a, like a tiny bay window and sort of facing out watching, you know, it's very quiet. No, there's no one about really, just her neighbours. They're mostly inside. And she would occasionally see people walk past the bungalow who were sort of dressed in suits sometimes. And they would just be walking off sort of from left to right. And she would think, well, that's sort of quite strange. And being a sort of a curious older person who, you know, you know, Twitter, we call them. <laughs> she liked to know what was going on in her little area, you know, who's visiting who. And so she would jump up and go, you know, look out the window. And this person or persons, they just wouldn't be there. And they, you know, they wouldn't have had time to get to a store or whatever, you know. And that happened a few times. And then she, two, two new ladies had sort of joined this little estate where she lived. 
And they'd got talking and it turned out that these other two ladies had had similar experiences. And one of them had actually asked her, because she was new to the town, she asked her where the railway station was. And basically, she, because she'd heard all the same things, and she just assumed that it must be somewhere around, you know, she wanted to know where it was for future reference. So the, the lady who'd been there longer basically said to her, well, look, there hasn't been a railway station here since, I think it's 1966. And they took it, you know, they demolished it all, and it was actually on the site where we're standing. You know, it was all around here. And um, so, I mean, in, in, the, in the chapter, I sort of muse on how how that whole thing works, you know. I mean, right. we, we, gave, we gave it a lot of thought, and I probably can't put it over, and uh, it's better to read it, really, but we went into all the ideas of how the actual motion of steam engines. Yeah, electromagnetic energy, energy or telluric yeah. energy. Yeah, and, and if you imagine that, that's... Um, you know, hundreds of times over a period of, you know, thousands of times, and that sort of electromagnetic thing going on. And that maybe emotions can run down these lines because there, there were other railway hauntings yeah, and associated you get, with this one. You have strong human emotions, people coming and, and going, people being reunited and separating, and almost like a, you know, a lot of the same feelings that would be around a place like a cemetery or something. That's right. Uh, and we also looked at the fact, um, so we, when I think we are generally mean me and Janice, because we, as you know, Janice is really into this stuff and she's, she's the one you want to be talking to, really, but she won't do public speaking. <laughs> she is amazing. She's got so much knowledge of this stuff and has had, you know, so much experience of it too. But um, we were talking about the very nature of a steam engine, for example, and my, my father was a steam engine driver back mm -hmm. in the early 50s. And he used to often say, you know, they're living beings. You know, you do realize they are, you know. And I used to think he was, well, I think he was just being uh, sort of dramatic about it. But I don't think he believed that they were, um, you know, like the animists. The animists, they think that buildings, uh, cars, trains, whatever, stones trees you know they've all got spirit and, and i i tend to believe that a bit more than i used to actually now i'm sort of heading that way right well interesting um but we were talking about that and then of course there's the correlated like something like even king doing christine mm -hmm. you know you've got yeah. that possessed color you know <laughs> um, so <laughs> i think the instance let me ask Sorry. you this. Let me ask. I want to ask you this real quick because we're going to segue this into the UFOs. Real, but before we get into that, you mentioned this battle, and you talk about this in the yeah. book. And you know, we went out. So Serfiel went with me down to uh, Chattanooga to the Chickamauga battlefield. Yeah. And when any time that you're in one of those like Civil War battlefields here in the United States or yeah. any other kind of I'm battlefield, you get a certain feeling when you're there. Yeah, absolutely. What, what's your thoughts on the yeah. influence of that? of that English civil war battle on the landscape. And um, does in, that... in terms of this, yeah, in terms of this particular place, to, I'll be honest, it's not actually that huge. I mean, it hasn't got a reputation like nationwide. Like I think some of the other battles sort of further north. Sure. Um, I think, uh, is it? Oh dear. I'm trying to think of a name of it. I'm not so big on what went on up in the Midlands and so on, but there were a few battles up there where they do have. I mean, there's a fascinating uh, video on YouTube somewhere of which 
dates back to the actual program was made in the 60s, I think. And they're actually speaking to people who have experienced um, ghostly manifestations or whatever on these battlefields, civil war, English civil war battlefields. Right. And, but generally speaking, viewed um, Stratton, it's more or less the same. It's very close. It's not mentioned generally. I mean, it's not. I mean, if you speak to people locally, unless they're really into this stuff, mm-hmm. they don't really know. But I dug into it because obviously I, I knew people who were into this stuff and who knew more than I did. Like my old friend, Michael Williams, who did my forward, he was, you know, he was the main man in what he would call the supernatural. And he really was amazing. And he'd, he'd done a lot of work up there with um, mediums. And they had experienced a lot of stuff. Have you heard of Peter Underwood? No. He he did the uh, Gazetteer of British Ghosts. He he was like the, probably the biggest name in sort of ghosts back in the sort of sixties and seventies. He was the, okay. the authority on it. Yeah, I just wondered just the influence of the battle and were you a place where so many men died and yeah. all the emotions that are poured out onto that field. Yes. But the influence yeah. of that is like somehow opening up a yeah, gateway or doorway area yeah. or whether or not the doorway yeah. area is already there and the battle is pulled to that position. That's something else that I've thought about in the past. Like, yeah, it could be that, you know, depending, I mean, there's so many options, but it could be that the spirits of these people lingers, you know, in the horses, um, which ties into that other um, experience I put in there about the guy that saw the glowing ball just come down the lane. Because this is yeah. all, like I say, it's all very, very close together, all of this stuff. The, well, not all of it. These pieces we've been talking about, the, uh, well, I say the, the buddy song was not really connected, but the buddy song, the the glowing ball thing, the, uh, the, the owl, GCHQ, you know, all of these things are really, really close. You can get to all of them within like 15 minutes, you know, from any one. In addition, um, then, yeah. then if the battle isn't so much, what what other what other kind of paranormal influences do you think make Cornwall a particular hotbed? Do you do you feel like it's more of a hotbed than other parts of of the UK, uh, or, or are you just tuned into and interested in this kind of just been your your field? I think I think really wherever you are, you're going to find your own little pockets, um, right? Yeah, we do. We do have a lot, and it's true. I mean, like if you speak to most people who are into this stuff in England or Britain, I should say, they will say number one is London. Anything around London, it's riddled with it, you know. Um, number two is probably Cornwall. It, it, it's close. Okay. But you know, if, if you lived in um, I don't know Somerset or up north, maybe somewhere in Northumberland, you you might say, well, in fact, I know because I've experienced stuff in Northumberland, you know. So. I think it's everywhere, but maybe there are, you know, like if you think about, um, say, like where um, where Timothy Renner is, around that area, you know, he's obviously got a lot of it going on around there. I think there are there are little pockets of right. it, and then you've got like that Helia program, you know, you've got obviously got some a lot of weird stuff going down there. So I, I think it's everywhere. Do you, I do. I think it's yeah. Everywhere. Do you think that Cornwall is definitely a UFO hotbed as compared to the rest? Yeah, I, I think, I think it's definitely up there because 
you know, again, it comes down to this. I, I personally believe there's something, you know, I don't, we don't know, obviously, we don't know where they come from. I mean, for me, I would say not. I, I don't believe in the nuts and bolts thing. I mean, I did when I was younger. I, I don't believe in that now. I, I do believe there's sort of like parallel worlds, maybe, some sort of other dimensions. I know it's people say that's lazy to say dimensions, but what other way have we got to describe it? I don't know. So, you know, there's like, if you imagine, um, the way I see it is if you've got maybe a flat circle and, you know, you're right, you're drawing a circle and you could sort of run um, vertical stripes through it and each one is a different um, reality, if you like. And I think where, where they meet occasionally there can be sort of bleed-throughs. So, and maybe some beings are capable of, or, you know, they're capable of moving from one to the other. Maybe we're sort of stuck in one. Others are just coming and going as they please. And I, and I think we're only now becoming aware of that because people like Joe, Joe, Joe DeMere, and uh, there's another guy in England, um, I can never remember his name, <laughs> But he, he's doing a lot of research as well. But he's picking up these um, entities with – he's working with uh, different – like mostly like water. and he, He's an absolute genius, this guy. I try and think of his name. Um, but he's actually getting photographs of like – they look like fish. But clearly not fish, but they look like fish-like entities. And they're up there, they're up there all the time around us. So there's, there's life forms that we do not see because obviously we're in that, you know, 1% that we see or less than 1%, I think it is. And, you know, there's other stuff going on around us all the time. That's how I see it. I, we coexist with these beings. We're only now, with, with a technology as it's moving, we're gradually being able to, you know, in time, we'll be able to track these things and understand them. Well, I mean, if, if if you look at a dimensional idea of the universe, you know that there's different dimensions piled on top of ours. Then, then yeah, I could see that. And yeah, I, I mean, def, but and I definitely think that things bleed through and come come through. Yeah, I just think in some areas in Cornwall, maybe one of these are certain parts of it that these entities, these supernatural creatures, can come through a whole lot easier. And the, maybe like the the veil is thinner or yeah. whatever, you know, the, well, the old maybe, cliche. But I think there's something yeah. to all that. Maybe there's a couple of factors that play into it. You, you've got a lot of granite down here. Right. And I think granite is sort of traditionally, I mean, we, we know that with the uh, Pallides stuff. I and mean, that's granite. A lot less monster, that's, that's granite around there. Um, so the granite plays a part. And I think water. Um, I mean... <sighs> You know, a lot of hauntings, but I don't know, I could tell you the exact figures, but a lot of hauntings take place near water or near electric sources or, you know, sightings of UFOs and stuff. Um, so there's a connection there as well, I think. Um, and, you know, we have to think about time as well. I mean, you know, time isn't like a linear A to B thing, as, as I think we may think, some of us may think it is. Yes. 
I, I think it's more sort of con- so concurrent, if that's the word. I'm not sure. Yeah, I the idea that everything is happening, happening at once or already, already has happened. Yeah. 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 Well, the other idea, of course, another idea is um, Anthony Peake's idea, which is, you know, I'll probably, probably misquote him, but that sort of the idea of the perpetual return, you know, where you're constantly coming back and playing the same, like almost like a video game. You're playing the same life, and that's a possibility. And then, in those final moments, when when perhaps you're you're dying, and the is it the glutamate or whatever they call it soaks in, or you know does that thing it does, maybe you relive your life, but it's relived in real time, in the time of you know what we have here. So basically, we could all be doing that now, you know. What we're saying to each other now may well not be happening now. It may have happened centuries ago. But we know this could be just my memory. You might, you know, you you might not even be there. It's, you know, what I'm saying. It's just like we, we've almost. I, I don't. I just think it's far too complex. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, yes. We're always going to be guessing, yes. aren't we? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we. You could argue the nature of reality. I think over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a that's an interesting thought, an inter, interesting theory. Uh, was there anything that we wanted to say, ask about UFOs? Well, it seems like GCHQ really has a big influence on the, the yeah, amount of UFO yeah. activity in Cornwall. Yeah, do you think there's something yeah. technological going on there? Yeah, I, I well, I, I sort of come to that conclusion because I, I think they, they well, their, their job is obviously to monitor. I presume they monitor Russia and China and whoever else, you know, they monitor right. all, all phone calls. They're monitoring us now just by saying GCHQ, Zoom, they're in. <laughs> I actually had an experience where I was talking to um, Weird, Wacky, Wonderful, um, my friend Shelley, my Welsh friend, and we were talking about all this stuff and they, somebody came on the line. Yeah, we definitely had, a lot. there was a definite presence on the line. Oh, they, um, uh, yeah, they they pushed the wrong button. Yeah, special guest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we'd like to so, say hello to the NSA over here in our end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got. Well, they're they're part of it. They run it too. I think they are the top boys at this space. They're yeah. our number one listener. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they get to hear the show before anyone else over I, Skype. I, I will. I will get yeah. some weird hits from Washington D.C. of like several episodes downloaded at once. It does happen. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> I don't know what it means, so, but so, I've seen it. I'll try and be serious for a moment. So <laughs> there's um, there's certain beaches down this end of Cornwall where I'm now, down the far west. And as I say, we're, I'm, a, I'm literally, I'm about a 10-minute walk from the sea on one side and probably a, I don't know, 10-minute drive the other side to the sea, uh, all, all the way around. And, uh, well, not, not quite all the way around. <laughs> Not yet, not until the waters rise. <laughs> but um, there's on these beaches, they have the, the latest uh, fiber optic cables heading out under and in these um, reinforced shield sleeves, you know. Yeah. And they go out under the beaches and then along the seabed all the way to America. Uh, not just to America, but down to Spain and North Africa and just everywhere, really. And they're all they're sort of privately owned. But some of them are government-owned, and as we know, there's a link between the two anyway at a certain level. They all, you know, BT are in the pocket of the government, clearly. 
um, you know, because they let GCHQ monitor all these calls, you know. And every call that goes out in and out of this country, comes out of in and out of Britain, goes through those cables. So literally it's all filtered at GCHQ. So it doesn't matter who you're speaking to. I could be speaking to, you know, Janice in Springfield, Illinois, and I can guarantee that, that they will. I'm not saying they do because there must be like buzzwords and people of interest, obviously. Yeah. And I don't, I hope I'm not on that list yet. Uh-oh. Well, <laughs> so, uh, or ever. Mark in the top. Uh, yeah. Not, and I think the UFOs monitor those places is what I was leading to. The UFOs are clearly seen by and many people and people have weird experiences on the beaches. Maybe they're watching where the those watchers. Tables are, even when they don't know those things. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we've had people sort of go, go out on fishing trips and basically have missing time. People who beach cast fishing. Uh, I think I've got a few of them in the second book. Um, is that like they, podcasting? They have similar experiences. Sorry? Is that like podcasding? No, no, podcast, <laughs> no, no beach, beach cast. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> okay. uh, in the in the, um, in the time that yeah. we in the time that we have left, I want to cover a couple more things with you. Yeah. Um, the Bodman Moore, and especially the screams that are heard. Yes, yes, because there's yeah. nothing better than unearthly, yeah, well, that, disembodied screams. Yeah, that was. I mean, that, that was just a story that I sort of happened upon when I was sort of researching Jamaica Rain and all that, and. Um, I just thought I can't afford not to put this in. It's just, it's just so creepy. And um, it was, I, I'd have to sort of look at the story again, but I think it was two lads, wasn't it? I think, and they were camping and they were in the middle of a, one of these old stone circles, um, which date back, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years plus, I suppose. And they thought it was a nice little spot, you know, a nice quiet little spot. So on Bodmin Moor, which is very, very creepy. And um, they basically had this very, very loud, unearthly screaming, screeching sound. And they, they were absolutely terrified of this. I think, I'm trying to remember now, I think one of them looked out at his head and there was just this big triangle above him, black triangle, I think. And... Um, they were so terrified that they stayed in the tent. And in the morning, they eventually got the courage to come out. They were so traumatized. And there were mutilated sheep by the tent. I think it was sheep. I can't remember if it was sheep or birds or something. But they were mutilated and they were sort of unnaturally mutilated, which, you know, crops up again and again, doesn't it? Mm. So, so that, do they think that it was the... In that story, did they think it was the? Uh, did they think it was the? The sheep that was screaming, or they think that whatever was disemboweling the sheep oh, no. was screaming. No, 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 no. They think. It, well, yeah. I, do you know what? I've never even so stupid. I've never even considered it was a sheep. But I, I, I mean, I, I don't think sheep would scream like that, would they? Um, I, I, I get the, the sense that when these things happen to them and cattle and so on, I get the sense that they're somehow um, shut down anyway. You know, sort of, um, what's the word, you know, restrained. 
Yeah. So that, that probably shuts down their vocal cords as well anyway. So I, I wouldn't afford them to shoot. And people were also but, uh, on that yeah, same I mean, war were also seeing like ghost vehicles or like they was like feeling that presence. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a vehicles one that really, really sort of gets my interest because I've actually seen, I've had trying to think now, a couple of experiences similar to that. And I know people have had similar experiences, including my friend, Michael Williams. Um, he, he was a, you know, supernatural investigator from way back. He, he just died early this year. And, you know, people see vehicles coming towards them and then they'll just, they, they get, they might just check their mirror and they've gone. They just totally gone. You know? Um, there's a case of Michael where he was going back home one afternoon and he was coming up this little country lane on the way to his own little cottage. He, he lived on the moor and there was a little, I think it was a little van pulled over into a, what we call a lay-by, like a little passing space so he could pass. And he, Michael stopped thinking he would let this other guy go first. And then when he looked again, it wasn't there. It's just completely gone. Nowhere it could have gone. So, um, yeah, the big, the big story I loved was way back in the 70s, I think. And it was a, a driver, a truck driver from up in uh, Coventry in the Midlands, who was, his job was to move brand new vehicles from the Midlands of England down to, I think it was Falmouth in Cornwall, to a dealer. And he was just doing this regularly overnight. And part of that entailed going across a bit of Bodmin Moor, which is very, very high, very, very barren, and very, very creepy. But he'd never had any experiences up to that point, I don't think. And he was just driving along, and all of a sudden he sees an old-fashioned car. So this was in the 70s. But he saw a car that he felt belonged to, I think he said 20s or 30s. And it was, he's heading down. So he was on, you've got to remember we're the other way around. So he was on the left-hand side of the road, heading down towards the west. And this car was on the same side of the road. Sorry, on yeah, it's on the same side of the road, but it passed him on his left, which it shouldn't have done anyway, because the left is just like uh, bits of granite and... <laughs> fences it's like you don't want to go there you smash your car but this car went off to his left and he couldn't believe it he thought he thought they'd crashed you know he he said that there were, it was full of young men and it was an open top uh convertible and that they one of them at least one of them was standing up in the back and he had a bottle in his hand like he was drinking uh-huh. and he had i think he had a long overcoat on he, he sort of spotted he sort of picked up on the way they were dressed was old fashioned. He said they, they were singing. He remembers they were singing. And, he, you know, his reading between the lines, he was saying they were all basically pissed, you know, drunk. And presumably that's how they lost their lives. But he saw that and basically kept it to himself. This was the 70s. He didn't want to tell anyone. He, you know, he didn't want people to laugh at him, didn't, wouldn't believe him. And then sometime later, he swapped his job from being a, a lorry driver, a truck driver, to running uh, buses, coaches for tourists. And, so. and he arrived, I think it was here in St. Ives, at a coach station, and he saw all his new mate, his new driver mates <laughs> having a rest, uh, you know, having a, having a fag, a cigarette, and a cup of tea. <laughs> and basically, they're all taking the mickey. 
the piss, whatever you call it, out of this new guy. So he gets out of his bus, goes over to see what's going on. And it turns out they're, um, he's telling, the new guy is telling them about this car that he's just seen on Bodmin Moor that disappeared. And because they're not taking him seriously. So he basically said, well, you know, let him tell his story. And when he told his story, it was basically the same thing, huh. the same vehicle. I think it was green. It was a green car. I remember that now. Uh, the same vehicle, same people. A story that, you know, the experience he'd had. And that that car had also been seen in two or three other places within, say, 10 miles. Does anybody know? Of, has anybody looked in like the archives to see if there was an accident that would that fits that description well, it, with those with four people, rowdy teenagers? Yeah, it, apparently, is what it looks like. Yeah, I think so. It it really goes back to possibly we don't really know, but it could be twenties, thirties, forties. You know, okay. I think it would be in that range. I mean, it would take a lot of work. Maybe maybe that's something I should do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's feasible. There will be a record of it. And does so, it, yeah, but go, sorry. Well, does it happen because you hear these things happen recurring at like certain times of the year or certain yeah. days? Does it seem to happen like that, or does it well, more happen I, just randomly? I've not heard of it since. I mean, all I've, all I've, I, I, I originally read it in Michael Williams's uh, Supernatural and Cormorants, yeah. probably the first book of his I ever bought in sort of the mid 70s, right? And, um, that's why I read it, and it's sort of that's what I wanted to put that in the book because it's just it's always been one of my favourite sort of ghost stories, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, as I started digging into it, I found there were so many others, you know. I mean, I, I had a case uh, with a motorbike that came up behind me um, when I was in Northumberland, and it was it was there, I and mean, I was watching it in the mirror, and it's this sort of slightly maniacal looking guy behind me, right up on my boot <laughs> and um, it's sort of quite unnerving and I pulled pulled over to let this thing go by because it was again it was a narrow lane and it never passed if there was nothing there but I'd clearly seen it in the mirror and it couldn't have gone anywhere and I the more you dig into this it, it happens a lot people, this happens to people all the time so you know are they playing out their last moments you know maybe or is it a recording yeah. on the environment? Yeah. That's the or other possibility. Like, yeah, well, like we said earlier, though, I mean, it could, if, <coughs> if time isn't as we know it, then maybe that's still happening and it's just, like you say, like a bleed through. Maybe, you know, you know, it's been said hundreds of times before, but like traumatic events leave their footprint or whatever, you know. Right. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's um, all of the above, probably. <laughs> That's kind of what it seems like to me is like a, a real traumatic event. And another, but we should mention this one too. There's another story in the book where um, guys are like an old airfield, and he hears some commotion going on. That's like sounds like straight out of World War Two. Oh, this was actually um, yeah, RAF uh, David Stowe on on the moor. And um, it's the highest, I think it's the highest airfield in Britain, possibly, probably, very likely. So this is also and, on the moor, too. So something about that area oh, yeah. is, yeah, is so, interesting. So, so, yeah, so that's a separate area, really, but separate to um, 
Yeah, it's, it's quite near Bude, but it's not. It's probably 20 miles away. Bude isn't actually on uh, the moor, but, you know, but it's fairly, fairly close to Bodmin. So you've got Jamaica in, you've got the area where uh, the cheese the cheese ring, I think it's called, yeah, the cheese ring. That's where those lads had that experience with the black triangle UFO and the screaming. Um, yeah, but it, and the bug ghost vehicle, one of us, well, at least one of them was up there. You had a case of the two chefs who worked at Jamaica Inn driving home towards Plymouth, which is quite a drive across the mall for us. And they came charging around a corner and there was a, a guy hanging from a tree, actually in the road somehow. I don't know how that worked. He was hanging and they clearly saw his face. They saw that he had a red neckerchief, but he had big boots, like, you know, um, uh, like above the knee, like like sort of pirate type boots, you know. And they they could both clearly describe it. And that that was so that was like a really pretty terrifying thing with an accompanying bad feeling. You know, they felt that even though they were driving through quite quick, they felt that they felt the fear of it. Um, so yeah, Bodmin's full of it. Sorry, what, what were we on just now before I digress? Oh, well, the, what the, the experience that uh, the guy had at the old uh, RAF base. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was actually, it was actually a lady. Um, her name was um, Prudence Pepper. And she, she'd come from London uh, after the war. She'd been a, an ambulance driver up during the Blitz, the London the Blitz, the German Blitz. And she'd sort of basically decided to get away from London to sort of rewind her batteries or whatever recharge and um, she ended up living in this little cottage quite near that airfield now the airfield closed down i'd have to check it but i think it's 47 48 sometime around there and it was, it had quite a few um people sort of based there we, we had canadians were there uh, the americans were there i forget which which ones but the americans were there the royal air force were there uh, i think the polish were there at one point too so it had a lot of different people based there, and most of their work was involved in, uh, like, Coastal Command, they called it, which was, like, looking after the, you know, rescuing people and attacking submarines, attacking the U-boat pens in uh, Brittany, in, you know, during the war, 42-ish, 42, 43. And, you know, quite it was a dangerous airfield because it was so high. So the cloud cover would come down really, really low and it would be difficult to, you know, if they came back, they'd often come back limping after their excursions over Europe during the war and they'd be struggling to get home. And then they, you know, they might have, a, you know, bits of a wing hanging off or whatever, you know, and instruments shot to pieces and life was tough enough already. And then when they get back, they find that they can't see the wrong way, you know. So they occasionally crash, you know, they'd have a few fatalities there. So this Prudence Pepper, she was there maybe 10 years later, maybe a bit more than that. And she used to just go up there and have a look because it was abandoned. So it's a huge airfield with all these old buildings, which, you know, the local ghost hunting groups regularly get pictures of like airmen in these buildings. You know, you can clearly see there's, there's figures. Um there's a museum there now, and that has activity in it as well. People hear planes all the time, like this, this Prudence did when she was there. Um, 
she would hear planes as if they were trying to land. And mm. then she would hear like the wheels hitting the tarmac. She would smell the burning rubber as they did that. Mm. And sometimes she'd see little flashes of light as if something had crashed. And she, there was like a cycle. It would just happen two or three times. And she used to go up there quite regularly and sort of see this sort of stuff or hear. Not, she'd never see anything. She'd hear all this stuff going on. And as I say, in more recent years, the local sort of uh, paranormal groups go up there. And I've, I've been up there myself a few times. And, you know, people do have experiences up there. There's, uh, there's a museum. I don't think I put it in the book, but there's a museum, uh, like an REF-type museum. And they, they talk about what, not just about the REF, but about the Americans and Canadians, what what their, what their job was during the war. They've got all the exhibits and the photographs and so on. And part of the display are mannequins with like um, the, the Women's Royal Air Force. So it's like um, these very glamorous mannequins dressed in the old 1940s REF uniform for ladies. And then there's a the male one alongside it, you know, I mean, they probably changed it now, but this is what it used to have. And they would lock that place up at night. And they would know exactly what it was like because they'd had this experience before. So they'd lock it all up, make sure no one has a kit. And then when they go in in the morning, they'd find that the lady's clothing had been removed. <laughs> and you know, various other things. So, so uh, yeah, it could have been a practical joke. It's possible. But it could, but people have heard voices in there. We've heard people speak to them directly, and there's no one there. And um, there's yeah. you'll find you'll find this in uh, aircraft museum. Some of the older planes have got, you know, presences. There's a there's a Boeing seven four seven in uh, on the outskirts of London. Uh, actually, I think it's Dunsfold, um, where they film Top Gear, and they use it in films like James Bond films and stuff. And actors and actresses don't want to spend time in it because there's a, there's a air crew member who suddenly appears and disappears. <laughs> so it's it's not an uncommon thing. Yeah, I think it's got to do something with the expending of of human emotion and what we can put onto the environment. I think it's very very powerful. Yeah. And yeah. I think, yeah. I think in a place like Cornwall that may be receptive to it anyway people certain people can pick up on it well mark uh this has been fascinating fascinating mm -hmm. interview I'm, I'm so glad to, to to have you on and this is not uh the last uh, interview for this book because there's a second book yeah and we're gonna do one here probably about like a month and a half or so but okay. tell people where they can find the both volumes of the spirit of cornwall okay. Okay. Um, at the moment, I've just got them on with Amazon. So any of the Amazons, you know, UK, US, whatever. Are you um, doing print on demand? I, I well, just no. What I've, I basically just literally, um, I've, I just keep a few copies, and everybody else just buys them direct. You know, I don't, uh, I don't buy like, you know, a hundred copies and just sit on them in the in the garage. You know, it's just like I, it's just direct. So. Um, and I, I am planning to get them into uh, Waterstones and uh, I'm trying to think of a name of a big American one. I can't think of it now. Barnes and yeah, Noble. Yeah, Barnes and Noble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's to come. Um, 
yeah, I'm intending to publicise it a bit more. I mean, I haven't really publicised it that much in Cornwall, to be honest, not yet, uh, but I intend to. Uh, because I, oh. I think it's a bit of a crossover book. It's not just a paranormal book. It sort of crosses over into, I mean, we haven't really touched on that much tonight, but it goes into sort of the culture and the history a lot more. And mm. I should impress upon, yeah, I should impress upon people that, you know, when we're having this conversation, we're going back and forth and it's all based on, I'm trying to sort of remember all this stuff because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, we sort of leap about a bit. But, you know, like we do in conversation generally, but in the book, I should stress that it's more methodical. You know, you, I run through the backgrounds of these things and it's it's more easy to understand um, than perhaps it is when we're just um, having a conversation. But so. Uh, Oh yeah, we, it's well we didn't even cover, I think, even half of what's in the book. So people, um, no. if you're interested, please get this book. And there is a second volume out as well. Uh, highly okay. recommended. I highly recommend Mark's books. Absolutely. Thank you. So I, I didn't say that. It's called The Spirit of Cornwall, A Haunted Legacy. Uh, don't just say The Spirit of Cornwall because that is in itself a sort of nod of respect to an author who I was influenced by when I was younger, uh, who used to write at Cornwall. That was his book. But I just loved the idea of using the spirit of Cornwall because that's basically what I've written about in, in many different ways. Right. Um, not just in the terms of, you know, it sort of, it lends itself to the ghostly side, but also to the actual feel of the place, the culture of the place, the history of the place. And then the haunted legacy is like my bit to sort of... <laughs> make that distinct from his but it's also like an acknowledgement that you know he's he's part of that in a way kind of an homage so, mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's it yeah so and it, as i say volumes one answer well very interesting um Thank you so much, Mark. Um, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, guys, and we will be back to briefly close out the show on Conspiranormal. That was a good interview with uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt. And we did another, what was it, 25, 30 minutes with him? At least. That we'll put up on Patreon at some point. So, um, Spirit of Cornwall, A Haunted Legacy. Guys, check it out. It's a good book. And like I said before, we're going to have Mark back on uh, probably sometime in March. For part two, for part two, and he is working on part three right now, and then we'll have him on for that too. Yeah, and he's just one of those researchers who really captures the the spirit of place, and he's kind of becoming the the Cornwall paranormal guy. Yeah, and also I think it's interested interesting because even though he has a 
Cornish, uh, some Cornish roots too. It's kind of like his adoptive place. And a lot of times people who adopt a place, uh, end up kind of not taking things for granted and become more interested than the people who are just already there. Yeah. They feel more connected to it because they've invested in becoming a part of it. Yeah. I think that that's, that's how, how it can work for a lot of people. It's something I can relate to. Um, and then same here, then kind of how, um, what makes the Cornish different is that they're a more isolated group. And with these more kind of the more isolated groups are, and the more they've been able to withstand like really big changes, like they were kind of able to avoid a lot of the um, changes of the Roman conquest. Right. They have, you know, like older traditions or things that are, you know, a gateway to, to more antiquity than other groups might have. Yeah. Cause they're very much on what was, called the kind of like the Celtic periphery. Yeah. Because as the Anglo-Saxons moved to the east, yeah. they pushed them to into Wales and then also into Cornwall. So it's it's real interesting. And then the whole the whole GCH HQ is really interesting with why why it's there and um I guess there's a lot of military history there in the World Wars, especially too right. the Air Force. Yeah. Um but kind of how it has that unique security establishment element to it yeah there's there's a lot going on apparently in the small little peninsula that's not very big not very wide which might it might be have been a good choice because of that right because you're kind of isolated um you know like area 51 here or something is out yeah correct correct you've got uh several things going on you've got battlefields there are there's that more area, which is always very odd and mysterious. And he mentioned something that I don't know if we didn't really hop on it, but there's also all the megaliths and stuff that are out there too. Yeah, I was wanting to get around to that, but didn't, didn't really get to squeeze yeah. that in. I think we'll get to that. Let's make a note to get to that for cool. the second book, because I think he's probably going to talk about So I think he does talk some about that. Cool, cool. Um, but that's another aspect. So you've got this like ancient, ancient culture that's there on the on the landscape. Uh, the English civil war battlefield is interesting to me. Anything with battlefields is pretty interesting. Um, whatever is going on there, whether interesting thing about battlefields and something that I've been playing around with for a little while. And Timothy Renner kind of clued me in on this when we were at Gettysburg about three, almost three years ago. Now this whole idea that battles can take place because they're pulled to a certain land or mm-hmm. to a certain area mm-hmm. and that there's something about that area that causes it to happen. And then it's almost like a, a vicious circle, right? Yeah. A chain that falls back upon itself. So I find that that one was, uh, that that's really interesting too, uh, just those concepts. And uh, apparently it was a rather large, it was a rather large battle that uh, during the civil war. And so I think that that has some influence and then just the water that's on the other side, and we ended up talking about in this Patreon episode with him, we talked about mermaids and we got a little bit into um, some stuff about the other and about fairy lore and talked a little about Hellier too. And like I said, we'll have that posted up fairly soon, I believe. So you guys can check that out. Uh, Patreon. Please check it out, guys. We should be posting something every week. By the time this comes out, we'll have uh, one out. Um, on the Friday before this comes out 
and then um, the upcoming Friday from when this is released, we'll have the bit with Mark. Yes. We'll try to have that be the schedule that every Friday, the main episode yeah. will come out Monday, and then every Friday we'll have a, a bonus Patreon. Yep, we'll have a bonus Patreon. And right now, that's that's as little as $1. But if you feel compelled to give more, please give more, because we, guys, we do put out, we are putting trying to put out a really good product, and we've got hours and hours and hours now of material to listen to on the podcast, and there's hours and hours of material to listen to on Patreon too. And uh, we're starting to do like little series where it's just us talking and we're probably going to move that also to the, to the main show, at least uh, my goal, at least once a month to have at least an episode where it's just me and Sergio. Yeah. Uh, instead of like a guest episode, because I think that uh, helps you guys get us get to know us better. So Patreon is there. That's uh patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Check that out. One-time donations can be left at the website um, at conspiranormal.com. And YouTube videos, YouTube channel, please subscribe. We're close to 900 subscribers on that right now. That could help us eventually maybe get that monetized as well. And uh, if you feel compelled, leave a review on iTunes. All that good stuff. Um, One final note. This is episode 298. Episode 300 is coming up soon. If you got this is pretty much a last call because by the time we do 299 is posted, we will be ready to record episode 300. So if you guys are interested in joining us, we will be recording on February 4th at 7 p.m. We will be uh, central time. Uh, please hit us up. You can do that at spiritnormal.com. You can do that at... Uh, conspiranormalgmail.com you can hit me up Adam Sane on Facebook and hit us up on Twitter as well the DMs are open so I think that is it and next time we're going to be talking about flying humanoids so join us then on Conspiranormal Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.